Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm your host, Marie Strotter. Please follow, share, like, subscribe, go to brightnews.com, or you can go to anchor.fm forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S or Acons, A-A-C-O-N-S dot substack dot com. Mike Barron is an award-winning comic writer and novelist, best known for his work on such titles as The Punisher, Badger, and Nexus. His most recent graphic novel, which is only available at Indiegogo.com, is Private American. It's also available at PrivateAmerican.com. Here is a preview. America's southern border has become a war zone. Human traffickers, drug smugglers, and terrorists flow across the Rio Grande with impunity, secure in the knowledge that no one will stop them. A distant federal government lectures Americans on their privilege while punishing overworked border patrol agents who were helpless to stem the tidal wave of invaders and determined migrants. Second-generation Cuban-American Marcos Zamora is a military vet more patriotic than most Americans. No longer able to ignore the chaos at his doorstep, he acts. Joined by his best friend Gus, they hit the border every night, saving lives while stopping violent drug cartels and other opportunists. The government reacts with fury at Marcos' attempts to preserve American sovereignty, deploying the full might of their enforcement agencies. But Marcos understands that the only thing the rich and powerful fear is bad publicity, and he records every encounter. Whoever he is, this private American must be stopped. Illustrated by Richard Bonk and written by Eisner winner Mike Barron, Private American is his version of Captain America, and maybe a little Punisher, taking part in this ongoing, violent, and very real battle of good versus evil in the war for American sovereignty. Grab your copy at theprivateamerican.com. That was amazing. I have goosebumps. I live in Texas. I've seen our porous border. And so I'm really excited to dive in and talk about this topic with our guest today, Mike Barron. Hey, folks. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It has been recently reported all over Twitter that you have started a GoFundMe uh, campaign to launch a lawsuit against the Daily Co's website and some others. What can you tell us about that? Well, uh, you know, I was largely unaware of the Daily Coast until they attacked me out of the blue. Uh, and they had an article by a woman who also makes her living crowdfunding comics on Kickstarter. And the headline of the article was, Mike Barron launches another racist AF comic. <laughs> it described private American as about a group of white supremacists who uh, kill those who are trying to cross the border seeking a better life. Nothing could be further from the truth. They also characterized my previous graphic novel, Thin Blue Line, about two police officers trying to survive a night of riots in a large Midwestern city as about a group of racist cops who go into black neighborhoods to kill as many people as possible. Nothing could be further from the truth. They never read Thin Blue Line. They have no idea what's in Private American. Thin Blue Line 
focuses on two police officers. One is a Latina, the other is black. They don't kill anyone in the book. Their job is to protect the mayor from the riots and the story revolves around their efforts to keep the mayor safe as they flee the rioting city. Uh, I have always ripped stories from the headlines. Many good writers do, so do many bad writers. But you can't ignore current events. Uh, when I wrote The Punisher, I took stories from the headlines. It was about biker gangs, drug smugglers, crooked bankers, anything that caught my eye. Uh, one was about a Jim Jones-style charismatic uh, preacher who ended up killing his entire flock. Uh, the reason I wrote Thin Blue Line is uh, I watched TV during the summer of 2020, like all of you, and saw neighborhood after neighborhood going up in flames, thousands of small businesses destroyed, hundreds of yes. people murdered, and always out front speaking to a camera. Some idiot saying, these are mostly peaceful protests. And then politicians, people who swore to uphold the law, and observed the constitution, started calling for defunding the police. And my so reaction crazy. was incredulity. Yes. Uh, civilization depends on the rule of law. You're either for the rule of law or you're not. And so I wrote that story. But I have to stress here that as a writer, my first goal, as always, is to entertain. And I use these narratives to provide an exciting, gripping story where you're not aware of any lectures or bumper stickers. You're drawn into the drama because you care about the characters and you want to know what happens. The most essential question in fiction is, what happens next? And in order for the reader to care, he has to care about the protagonists. Uh, and this is about moral fiction. Uh, John Gardner wrote a book called On Moral Fiction, which he argues that if your story rewards evil and punishes good, the reader will feel cheated. Now there are exceptions to this. There are always exceptions uh, like the novel Paris Trout by Pete Dexter or a lot of Cormac McCarthy's work. But for the most part, uh, we look for a moral epiphany in which good triumphs. Uh, and I have kept that in mind in my stories because it confirms the basic decency and an order to the world the way God intended. Now, uh, Private American came about partly because I asked myself, what would Punisher be doing today if I were writing him? And it seemed obvious he'd be on the southern border. Uh, the Marco Samora is a second generation Cuban American, a former Green Beret who lives in Texas and sees the devastation daily. And uh, when he realizes that the government not only does not intend to take any action, but is encouraging it, he decides to act himself. He's a vigilante, a long American tradition of vigilantes, uh, from uh, Death Wish to Dirty Harry to uh, Wild Bill Hickok. Uh, America has always rooted for the vigilante, and I think that's a part of an over, uh, a residual of, of opening the frontier. Uh, and we've all grown up on Westerns, and so many Westerns involve not necessarily vigilante action, but wronged persons taking the law into their own hands because they had no recourse. And that's the situation on the southern border today. But again, my number one rule is to entertain. Uh, and people who read the book are going to be uh, drawn in on the first page and they're not gonna be able to put it down 
until they finish the book. And my goal is to tell a story that's so involving that the reader is irritated if anything uh, interrupts his or her enjoyment of the story. That's what I always try to do. And these days, uh, I don't let anything out of the house with my name on it unless I consider it a home run. That's awesome. Can you give us the uh, GoFundMe address? so that Yes, our... I posted in uh, the private chat. Okay, and that is GoFundMe uh, forward slash F forward slash Baron Fight. So at the GoFundMe site, you can put in Baron, B-A-R-O-N, Fight, F-I-G-H-T, one word, and you'll be able to pull that up. Also, you can find it by Googling Mike Barron versus the scum of the earth. <laughs> That's pretty, uh, it's pretty accurate. Because these people attack me out of the blue. I'd never heard of them before. And then calling me a racist, which is a, a classic trick by the left. Yes. When they want to destroy you. I've been the target of cancel culture before. Uh, and I've learned a few things. Uh, you never apologize to these people. You never punch down. You never acknowledge them. You seek legal redress. And that's what we're trying to do. They have their own project on Kickstarter. And they urged everyone to say, to contact Kickstarter and get this racist program off your platform. Deny this person an ability to earn a living. And they succeeded. Kickstarter kicked us off. Crowdfunder kicked us off. And I'm not alone in this. I have a whole bunch of friends in a group called Comicsgate, and we crowdfund our own comics. Uh, and all of us are being shadow banned by Indiegogo. And I have to stress that my book is the only one with any political content, and I accept that. But the reason I chose to write it was to entertain. My second rule of writing is to show, don't tell. And that applies to life as well. And what that means is any information you can impart to the reader visually you should and, and spare your words uh, to advance the story or to characterize your protagonist. I deal my words out. When I write a comic, I, I deal those words out like gold coins. Uh, I hate to spend them. Uh, and I try to get the maximum return for the minimum amount of words. Uh, but when you apply show don't tell to life, it means you don't go around telling people you're a good person. You don't cover the rear of your car with bumper stickers to save the whales. You do what you can personally to save the whales. You do what you can personally to, to visit uh, children's hospitals or, or to donate or, or to volunteer in a soup kitchen. You do it. If other people notice, fine. If they don't, that's fine too. Show, don't tell applies to life as well as to storytelling. Another third rule I have is be original. Uh, which for me is not a problem because we're all unique human beings. And when we uh, create a, we, a work of art, we, we bring our personal experience and attitudes toward it necessarily. Uh, but you have to understand storytelling to balance that with the story because any good storyteller, the best storytellers have to imagine every point of view. If you're limited to a certain point of, of view uh, and you can't imagine people of another race or another sexual persuasion or religion, uh, it's going to limit your writing necessarily, and it's going to limit your appeal. Uh, and uh, a good writer has to put himself to the head of every protagonist and actor in his story, and I try to do that. Now, you have been called a 
stochastic terrorist by the press and private American has been called racist propaganda as you've alluded to and the most banned comic of the modern era. Why would a book about a Cuban American and former Green Beret battling drug dealers, human smugglers and rapists on the Southern border, all of this, which is going on. And I mean, if you were someone who lived in a border state, you would probably know this, that it's going on and how ugly it is. I mean, rape trees and things like that. Why is that so controversial? Well, uh, you know why. Uh, the reason is the people who have taken over this country for their own personal enrichment and to punish people they don't like have no fealty to the founding fathers, no knowledge of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. They're in it for themselves. The only thing they do really well is to lie. And you might call it propaganda, but that's how they seize control of this country. Uh, the reason the border is wide open, there are many reasons. One is Democrats are trying to replace voters who won't vote for them with people who will. Yes. By saying, come on in, we'll provide for your every need. Now, yes. everybody here knows that the unvetted uh, migrants crossing the border, which is up to 220,000 a month, are not tested for COVID or for yeah. anything. Very yeah. few of them get background checks on their uh, uh, criminal records. Uh, the Border Patrol is overwhelmed. Uh, the Border Patrol is scapegoated for trying to enforce the law. Even uh, Mayor Eric Adams of New York went down there. And up until then, he'd been a, a, a staunch uh, supporter of the current administration. And he said, this is chaos because, mm -hmm. and one of the reasons is because Southern governors are sending these uh, immigrants uh, to uh, liberal enclaves, yes. most of which have proudly declare themselves sanctuary cities. Mm -hmm. But as soon as the migrants show up, whoa, we're no yes. longer a sanctuary city. Now it's now it's our problem. We blame those governors down on the southern border. Yes. In fact, they're just trying to make people aware of the situation. Um, 250,000 Americans died last year of fentanyl poisoning. Yes. That fentanyl is pouring over the southern border. Yes. Uh, most of it is made in China or else the ingredients are shipped to Mexico and they make it there. Uh, it's big money. Uh, three years ago, the gross uh, uh, income of the combined Mexican drug cartels was $1 billion. Last year it was $3 billion. No, excuse wow. me. It was $10 billion. Wow. So this lawlessness on the border has increased the profitability to these lawless gangs who have no respect for human life a thousand percent. Uh, Mexico is a country that has lost control of itself. Uh, the, the drug cartels are in charge down there, not the Mexican government. Right. Uh, and these deals that our senile leader makes with the Mexican president and the Canadian premier are deals to help themselves. They don't help anyone else. Uh, it's this, you know, and this shouldn't come as a great surprise because as, as Plato noted and Cicero noted and Orwell noted, human nature does not change. 
now all of us have our hands full doing our jobs, taking care of our family, and maybe kicking back a little on the weekends and watching our favorite football team. But there is a certain class of person that spends every waking minute scheming on how to get power over others. These are the least qualified people on earth to have any power, and yet now they hold all the power. Wow. The co-creator of The Punisher, legendary writer Jerry Conway, took to Twitter in December not only to insult you, but to denigrate fans for what he calls their, quote, white fascist embrace of the Punisher symbol, end quote. Now, today's Frank Castle seems very different from the castle that you wrote with new powers, new weapons, and a new symbol. What do you think of these changes and the motivation behind them? Well, I have to confess, Marie, that uh, I very rarely read comics these days because there's, they follow Sturgeon's law. Theodore Sturgeon was a great science fiction writer, and his law is very simple. 90% of everything is crap. And that certainly goes for comics. Uh, even when I was an avid comic fan, I was mostly enthralled with the art. And I found the stories very unsatisfying. I did pick up a couple of comics in the past year just to see how they were doing. I bought two issues of Captain America and an issue of Master of Kung Fu, which I've always wanted to write. And none of those comics, in my opinion, contained any uh, entertainment value. It was a lot of virtue signaling and put downs and stuff like that. Uh, And as you know, uh, the big two, DC and Marvel, are undergoing a real crisis these days uh, because uh, nobody's buying their books. And the reason nobody's buying their books is because they forgot rule number one, which is it's their job to entertain. Now, uh, when I wrote The Punisher, I approached it as a straight crime comic. And for the first three years... There were no robots, uh, science fiction, or, or, or superheroes. I did have a, a, a couple of encounters with Dr. Doom and the Kingpin. The Kingpin, of course, has no superpowers, although he's a fantastic character and, and probably would not exist in real life, although I've seen some cosplay that, that absolutely rang it. Uh, then I had a new editor come in. He was a gimmick guy, so we got a little more into the Marvel Universe and, and certain gimmicks. Uh, but my goal was to entertain and to write the Punisher uh, as a vigilante who acted to protect the innocent. Uh, Now, the police and military who have adopted the Punisher symbol as their own, I say more power to them, and I'm grateful uh, because they do it, because they understand that the Punisher represents a moral force, a force for good. He's there to protect the innocent and punish the guilty. This... uh, revisionism with the Punisher goes hand in hand with the revisionism we see sweeping every art form. Now, Jerry Conway lives in Los Angeles and works in the television industry. And one thing I've noticed is if you work in Hollywood, you must be woke. It's not enough simply to agree with those views. You have to trumpet them daily. Yes. happened to a lot of friends of mine. You go to their their Facebook or Twitter feeds. It's it's nothing but virtue signaling. And virtue signaling just me the wrong way because it violates rule number two show don't tell that's absolutely right 
Now, a few of your peers have been loudly supportive of your work, despite uh, the controversy, including Eric July, a recent guest of ours, uh, Ethan Van Shiver, and Chuck Dixon. How has the industry overall reacted to the campaign to censor you? Well, uh, like every other branch of the arts, uh, it's split right down the middle between the woke and the traditionalists. I always say that being a conservative in the arts is like being a Jew in Nazi Germany. And that's no exaggeration. They will try to destroy you. They will try to deprive you of a living. They want you to starve to death. Mm-hmm. Now those guys, Eric, Chuck, and Ethan are solid allies. And another thing I can say about them is their art, their first goal is to entertain. They wouldn't dream of lecturing their audience. I don't lecture my audience. My first goal is to entertain too. I just happen to pick a hot topic subject. I don't see why I should be off limits. 10 or 20 years ago, nobody would have questioned the validity of putting a vigilante on the Southern border. But in today's tightly controlled world where you have to follow the narrative to get any work, where you have to be woke, it's forbidden. And you notice how the left keeps trying to constrict our language. Uh, I read the latest absurdity about some college banning the word fields. The word field is now considered racist, so you're not allowed to say it. Not to mention man and woman. Yeah, that's so crazy. Uh, Now, gun-related fatalities of police officers increased by 21% in 2022 over its uh, 2010 to 2020 average, which may be partly due to anti-police prejudice uh, that has grown to the point where the Los Angeles Police Department has banned the thin blue line flag because too many saw it as a symbol of white supremacy. How did you address this anti-cop movement in your graphic novel, The Thin Blue Line? Uh, well, you have to uh, uh, to read it to see it, but there's an assumption that the cops are evil. You know, it's not real heavily uh, uh, stepped on in the book because the book is mostly uh, a drama about the, the two police officers trying to protect the mayor and get out of the city. It's not heavy handed at all. Uh, they do run into some good old boys who are running into the city to, to start bopping heads. And, and uh, uh, the protagonist stops and says, boys, this ain't the way. It talks them into leaving. But they, they show up at the end. Uh, as you know, police suicides are up many hundreds of percent over the past three years. Uh, and that most police departments that purge their ranks are now desperate to bring them back that every major democratic city, New York, Minneapolis, Chicago, Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, you go downtown, they're ghost towns now because people are afraid to go down there because there's no police presence. Uh, And in fact, uh, the businesses in, in these towns are fleeing and turning the downtowns of these major cities into permanent ghost towns, which have been taken over by the homeless and why we have an explosion of homeless, there are many complex reasons for this, many complex reasons. But you've all seen the pictures of downtown Los Angeles, of just a sprawling tent city as far as the eye can see. And you've heard stories about parents who are afraid to let their children go to the park uh, because it's become a a live action drug dealing market. 
which is what happens. I mean, a lot of the homeless have have mental problems, and it's a result of uh, legislatures closing their mental hospitals and saying, "Oh, they they'll be fine. Just let them out there." Uh, and it's also a, a lot of these uh, legislatures have said, "We will try an alternative to police. We will send in." counselors. Well, you know, lots of luck when a counselor comes to deal with a hostage situation or something like that. They've all failed because these people have no knowledge of history. They think history began the day they were born. Uh, they don't appreciate the wisdom of our founding fathers, very few of whom were politicians. They were statesmen. They were serious people. And John Adams says, our constitution was only made for a a religious and uh, honorable people, it's wholly unsuited for the government of any other. And back in the day when the United States was forged, they were serious men who worked with their hands for a living. Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, yes. uh, they knew what life was like. They're the opposite of these tapeworms who have seized power in virtually every government, at least every uh, blue government in, in the country. Uh, and, you know, I think it's hard to choose the worst, but I think Gavin Newsom is the worst. He has no oh. understanding of anything. He simultaneously requires Californians to buy an electric vehicle for $100,000, and then he forbids them to charge it. And he, yes. can't even, he can't even deal with his own cognitive dissonance. He isn't aware of it. During the pandemic, I, I came. I I was born in San Francisco. I moved to Texas two years ago. Got out of there. Just done. But uh, the whole hypocrisy, the optics, if you will, of a governor saying that you know we're all locked down, stay in your home, and then having a three hundred fifty dollar person lunch at the French Press Cafe, you so know, or exempting French, French laundry. laundry, French laundry. Correct. I'm sorry, um, and the. Uh, optics of having his own winery, his family winery exempted from some of these things, the tasting rooms. It just, the hypocrisy is astounding, astounding. So I agree with you. I, I am, I have not been a fan of Gavin Newsom. Again, having lived in San Francisco and see how he uh, treated policy and, and was an activist, if you will, in changing law, uh, just is, is mind boggling to me. Now and then we have you, John Kerry, who swanks about the world in one of his several private jets and owns seven mansions. Yes. Uh, telling us you can no longer have your own personal transportation. Yes. Uh, we must make flying unacceptable. And they've pretty much done that. I mean, flying today is an ordeal. Uh, and now they want to do away with the, the internal combustion engine because they have no understanding of history. They have no understanding of anything. These electric vehicles... Uh, wreck far more damage on our environment than gasoline-powered cars. They just refuse to look at the source. Uh, the lithium and cobalt mining in South Africa, which is done by children who are forced into slavery. And then where does the power come from? It comes from electric, it comes from coal-burning power plants. It's just idiocy. It's just, it's just astonishing how stupid these people are who have taken over. But as I said, they understand one thing, propaganda. They know how to lie to get ahead. They know how to lie and to cheat and to steal. And the virtue signaling. It's just... Oh, yeah. the it's incessant virtue oh, signaling. Yes. 
Now, you are one of the few comic writers who have been successful in both writing for DC and Marvel and as an independent creator. What are some of the advantages and disadvantages of writing an independent project as opposed to taking on the big two a big two character such as the Punisher or the Flash? I have to say that uh, in my time at Marvel and DC, I have no complaints. They treated me very well. I worked with wonderful people. Uh, I worked with great editors like Denny O'Neill and Archie Goodwin. But one thing about those guys is they were writers first before they were editors. They weren't idiots straight out of college with, with a chip on their shoulder. Um, but uh, And, you know, my, my career fell apart in the 90s. There was 10 years, a very dark period in my life where I couldn't find any work whatsoever. And I took any job I could. I was a janitor for a while. For a while, I unloaded automobile bumpers. Uh, but uh, when I came back to writing, I'd been trying to write novels for 30 years. And when I came back to it and started in again, something had happened. And I understood story. And when you understand story, you don't make a wrong turn. Uh, and since then, I've been writing like a madman. And Thank God, and thanks to certain people and opportunities I've had, uh, my writing career has, has taken off, uh, such as it never had before. Uh, crowdfunding has been a great boon to me because I do have an audience. The trouble yes, is, is reaching the audience through these gatekeepers, uh, but we're looking into alternatives to, to that too. And I'm not the only one. Uh, many people who crowdfund their comics and books are disgusted with these crowdfunding platforms which are arbitrary and offer no, no way to appeal a decision. Uh, and so we're looking at new crowdfunding platforms all the time. Now, Indiegogo hasn't kicked us off. They just shadow banned us. And by that, I mean, if you go to Indiegogo and you type in the private American, you won't find it. Uh, but if you go to theprivateamerican.com, you'll find it. And that's the only uh, address that works. Uh, but we're doing okay so far. Uh, and as, as I said, it's, it's just a topic that appealed to me. I don't have a chip on my shoulder, but it seemed to me the stuff of great drama. And uh, the next project we're launching is a supernatural Western, uh, which is as apolitical as it gets. And after that, we're doing the next Florida Man graphic novel. And the only purpose of Florida Man is to make you laugh. That's so, uh, awesome. I'm, I'm happy with the way things are working out. Uh, and I'm pretty confident we're going to prevail over the daily cause because their their lies are provable and obvious. Yeah. You told Mr. Van Skyver that a number of people who have invaded the comic industry are, quote, not here to entertain, end quote. If they're not in comics to entertain, what do you believe is their purpose for being in comics? To signal their virtue. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> What is your view on changing or swapping race, gender, or sexual orientation of established characters, such as the recent effort to make the Joker gay, motivated by his unrequited love for Batman? I mean, it drives me absolutely crazy because I feel like, why don't you just write a new story? I know. I know. Well, this has to do with these uh, these wokesters they brought in to write these stories we're always trying to hammer home a message. <clears throat> However, when it comes to uh, race swapping, it depends. Uh, you know, I always say the best Punisher movie ever made is The Equalizer, 
starring Denzel Washington. If you've seen it, you know what I mean. Uh, and The Equalizer used to be a TV show <clears throat> in the 70s and 80s, starring a, a stiff upper lip British guy. And I saw a few of those shows and, and they weren't that exciting. But The Equalizer movie is, is mind-blowingly great. And I can't wait until uh, The Equalizer 3 drops later this year. So in, in that case, as with everything, it all depends on the story. Does the story work? Do you accept it? Do you enter into that world completely? And in the case of the Equalizer, you do. Uh, now, in the case of gay Superman, you don't. Uh, because there's no drama there. There's no story. It's just in your face, we're going to show you. And that's the whole purpose of the story. Ethan did a video clip on all the DC characters that had turned gay and bi, and it's quite lengthy. It's quite lengthy. Now, you know, I, I have no objection to gay characters when that's the origin of the character. Like uh, Benoit Blanc, uh, the character that Daniel Craig plays in Knives Out and Glass Onion, a great character uh, and one of his best roles. I have gay characters myself, um, Maxwell in The Badger, uh, and uh, uh, characters in Florida Man, uh, but that's because the story calls for them, not because, well, I'm going to show you, I'm going to jam this in your face. Yeah. No, that's, that's not entertaining. <laughs> and that's not real life. I no. mean, that's the thing I think that bothers me is, you know, uh, DK, who is uh, my co-blogger and partner here, and my husband, we're all big comic book fans, and we have a friend of ours, and we uh, do a, a chat, uh, we have a thread on our uh, phones, and we're always going back and forth about different things. And that's one of the things that makes us most crazy is that when you look at our world of, you know, 7 billion plus people um, and you look at the statistics, you know, we're talking about maybe 3% of the population, if that, and yet in comics, it's like 99.999%. There are no heterosexual couples, hardly. There are no, I mean, it does, it's not even typical of like what our world is like. You need all sorts of people, you know? And so it's just, as you said, it's virtually, it's virtual virtue signaling and shoving down the stuff down people's throats. You know, you need to accept this. We need to teach you the way and virtue signaling rather than, as you said, writing a really good story that entertains, that informs, that educates. Um, and that's why I really appreciate what you've done with the private American, because as I've said, again, I live in Texas. I see a lot of the local news. I see the devastation. I work for Alan West, and he's gone to the border a number of times with Raul Reyes, with uh, Frank Lopez Jr., with a number of people. And we see the devastation, the litter that's been left behind, the uh, devastation to property, where people's property has been, uh, animals have been killed, uh, automobiles have been stolen, people who purchased homes, abandoning them because it's so dangerous on their property. So, I mean, this is a story that needed to be told. So thank you for telling it. Thank you, Marie. Now, what is the, we alluded to it earlier, the Comics Gate movement, and what was your involvement in it? Uh, well, Comics Gate is a group of people uh, uh, started by very fine professionals, some of the best artists in the business, like Ethan, uh, Art Thebear, Aaron Lopresti, Billy Tucci, uh, 
who were unhappy with the opportunities they had uh, with the big two. Uh, and I imagine that some of this is due to the scripts they were handed and expected to illustrate. Uh, and they wanted to tell their own stories. Uh, so they broke away. And that's somebody threw that term out there called comics gate and it stuck. There are a lot of people, uh, hundreds of people who claim to be part of the comics gate movement. And, and I'm not saying they're not. I mean, you can call yourself whatever you want. Uh, but the, the core of the movement, which we call the comics gate kings, uh, we're all established professionals. Uh, with a proven track record. And uh, I think that we're all producing the best work of our career right now. Uh, and I'm the only one with this controversial book. And as I said, it only arose out of my desire to tell a gripping story. Uh, the books that I mentioned before that we have in the pipeline, Bronze Star and Florida Man, are as non-controversial as you can get. Uh, but they fulfill my desire which is to entertain, to tell a really good story. So that when the person puts a book down, he, he thinks, wow, you know, that's a great story. Why can't all comics be this good? Both of your Eisner Awards were given in connection with your work on Nexus. What can you tell us about that character and your upcoming projects, Nexus Nefarious and the Nexus Audio Series? Um, well, you know, we were in the right place at the right time. I was working at an insurance company in Madison, Wisconsin in 1981 when I got a phone call from a newspaper editor I knew. And he said, hey, there's some guy down here trying to sell us his artwork and you should take a look. Uh, so I phoned Steve Rude and we uh, arranged to meet on the steps of the student union. And as soon as he opened his portfolio, I thought, wow. And I stopped drawing. <laughs> I had tried to draw. And uh, I said, well, dude, what do you want to do? He says, well, I want to do comics, but I don't know how to write. What do you want to do? <laughs> I said, well, I want to do comics, but I don't know how to draw. Uh, well, it just so happened that in Madison at that time, Capital City Distribution, the second largest comic book distributor in the world, wanted to launch their own line. So uh, I went home and brainstormed. I wanted something, I wanted a, a science fiction type superhero. And I thought, well, what would make him compelling? This is really simple thinking. I thought, well, it would be compelling if every time he showed up, somebody died. But I wanted him to be sympathetic. So I made him a reluctant executioner of mass murderers. And he found them because when he slept, he dreamed of these mass murderers in detail often excruciating detail, uh, which deprived him of any true rest. And when he woke up, he knew instinctively that he had to kill them or the dreams would continue. Now, the reason he has these dreams is because there was an insane alien living in the world in which he lived who chose him at random to be the conscience of his race. Uh, and that's how it started. So. I went home and I, I wrote the first 12 pages and I do draw a little bit. I tried for years to draw and I, I wrote them by drawing each page out by hand. And we're gonna to get to that in a moment. Uh, because my pencils are good enough that anybody can see exactly what I'm trying to say. They're crude, but you can, you can see the layout, the perspective, the point of view. 
uh, and I gave them to Steve Rude, and the dude uh, penciled and inked and lettered them. And uh, we showed them to the boys at Capitol, and they said, great, give us 20 more pages. And we were off and running. Uh, to anybody who wants to create their own comics, I, I recommend drawing each page out by hand, whether you can draw or not, because it teaches you many things. Uh, it teaches you to think panel by panel. And you start with the first panel. And you say, well, what's intriguing? What's compelling? What will interest the reader? And you do that panel. And then you think, what happens next? And that's the most important question in fiction. What happens next? And the reader has to care about that before he'll turn the page. And so it forced me to think, what is a logical progression here? So I proceeded like an inchworm, panel by panel. But in the back of my head, I had story structure because my lifelong love of reading and movies and comics. And I understood that a story was a dynamic narrative with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And by dynamic, I meant that the hero's situation was constantly in flux, like this. It wasn't like this. Because if it was like this, there wouldn't be any story. There's no tension. There's no relief. There's no triumph. There's no tragedy. So he encounters obstacle after obstacle on the way to his goal. Uh, and any good reader will tell you this, that it, once any good writer, the, the, once you create a compelling character, a character you know that has lasting power, that has its own appeal, at some point the character turns around and tells you what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of my theories of storytelling is you have to surprise yourself before you can surprise the reader. And when you create a compelling character, that character is going to surprise you. And so that often determined which way the story would go. But there, there are a thousand moving parts in every story, uh, and it would be impossible to list them all. Uh, but when you understand story, you don't take a, a wrong step uh, because you know what contributes to it and what detracts. Oh, uh, and so and so they published it, and we did three black and white issues and five color issues, and then they realized they didn't know what they were doing. Uh, so they sold the rights to both Nexus and Badger to First Comics, and we were with First for like 10 years. And the only reason Steve Rude and I own the rights to Nexus is because Mike Richardson, the publisher of Dark Horse Comics, who bought them, return them to us. I don't own Badger. Badger is still owned by First Comics. I do have plans for him, however. And because of those books getting out there, uh, Marvel and DC started to call me and they wanted me to write things. Mike Gold was my editor first and he moved to DC. And the first thing he did was to call me up and offer me the flash. Um, now, while they have done a great job of making characters like Thanos and She-Hulk household names when they were previously only known to those of us who sprinted to the local comic book shop every Wednesday, Hollywood has not always been faithful to the source materials and have not increased comic book sales in any measurable way. Why hasn't the MCU been better for the comic business? Well, there's a couple of reasons, and, and one reason which is never mentioned, but is probably the biggest reason of all, is the rise of video games, because the truth is that your average $5 comic, 
uh, doesn't provide nearly the value, the excitement, or the adventure of a good video game. So we have a whole generation here who never got into the habit of reading comics because when they came of age, they had video games and they got into video games and uh, video games can be very addictive. It's never mentioned, but that's one of the big reasons comics aren't doing better. The second reason is the fail, failure to capitalize on cinema. It seems so obvious to all of us that if only they would put a little comic book shop in the theater lobby, we would increase reading. But uh, it never happened. They just can't seem to get their shit together to do that. And uh, the third reason is there's a collapsing distribution system. I, for one, uh, uh, am very sorry about the disappearance of print media. I love print media. I made my living off it for many years. I was a newspaper reporter. I loved magazines. I subscribed to all sorts of magazines. Many of my favorite magazines have just gone away because they, they can't sustain themselves. Everything's on the Internet now. Uh, and it's so irritating because when you're reading a magazine, you come to an ad you can look at the ad or you can flip past it. But when you're on the internet and you want to read an article and you can't read the article because the ads keep coming at you like a blizzard, I make it a point not to see who those advertisers are. And when I do, to not patronize them because all they're doing is irritating me. Now, I understand that they have to monetize their conduct, their content somehow, but uh, they have not yet found a way to monetize it without alienating their readers. Yeah. How did you come into the comic book business and who were your influences before you did? Well, uh, I lived in Boston for seven years. I was music editor for the Boston Phoenix, uh, but I was always a huge comic nut. Uh, and uh, what I noticed was Master of Kung Fu by Paul Galassi. Uh, Swamp Thing by Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson, uh, Conan the Barbarian by Roy Thomas and Barry Smith. Yes. And anybody who's familiar with those comics knows that the art was like a hydrogen bomb. We'd never seen art like that before. It was so exciting, so great uh, that we had to have that book. And we would just, it would take a half hour to read the book. And that's a long time because we would stop on every page and just admire the art. And think, holy shit, how did he do that? Now, often the writing was not up to the arts level. Uh, occasionally it is, uh, but for the most part it wasn't. But I got into comics mostly because of the art. Uh, but then you come across some great writing occasionally, like uh, uh, Denny O'Neill, uh, who wrote Green Lantern, Green Arrow series that, that Neil Adams illustrated. And Denny was the first guy to insert politics uh, blatantly in his stories uh, when he made Speedy, Green Arrow's uh, uh, assistant, a junkie. And it was right there on the cover. Uh, and Denny was my editor for many years. And, and after years after uh, I had left DC, I interviewed Denny. And he says, sometimes I think that uh, the raucousness and in-your-face uh, demonstrations of the 60s have led to the incivility that we see today. 
If you're just joining us, our guest this segment has been Mike Barron. He is the author of Nexus and his uh, The Badger and also The uh, Private American. Where can our listeners continue to follow your work and follow you online? On Twitter, at Bloody Red Baron. I have my own website, bloodyredbaron.com. We're planning some big changes there. Uh, I have a Substack column, Mike Barron, on Facebook, the comics and novels of Mike Barron. I'm also Michael A. Barron on uh, on Facebook. I'm on uh, MeWe too. I think you can find me as as Mike Barron, either Mike Barron or Bloody Red Barron. I'm on Getter and I'm on Truth Social, and I'm on Minds, and I think I'm on Gab, but I haven't been there in a while. <laughs> Awesome. I'm going to go to your Substack right as soon as we're wrapping here because we have a Substack. So (laughs) that's awesome. Thank you so much for being our guest and thank you for what you're doing. Appreciate your stand. Now we're at that part of the show where we bring in DK. DK, come on in. What did you think of that, huh? Oh, boy, Bian, it was a great interview. It was a very interesting uh, individual. Great writer. Yes. I've read a lot of his work. uh, uh, Nexus. Uh, remember, he wrote Batman at one time. Uh, the Flash. I know most of his DC work, but I did read the Punisher. But it was um, he has quite a career. Yes, and to hear uh, what he's gone through, and to hear someone with a right-leaning perspective in an industry that is so left-leaning is so refreshing. I think. Yeah, that's why um, I was. That's why we wanted to have him on because yeah. people wonder why us, you know, we're mostly a political show would have a, a comic book writer on. And, yeah. and it's like what Andrew Breitbart is most famous for saying that politics is downstream to culture and the left has managed to, um, to use our culture to normalize their agenda. That's why you see such an explosion of uh, transgenderism Marxism, drug use, and athe- even atheism uh, among young people. Yeah, and and that was the con- That's one of the many controversies around that HBO series Thelma is that they are hypersexualizing fifteen-year-olds as well as uh, inundating their audience with these anti-white humor. You know. To make the one white guy, Fred, uh, he's portrayed in such a negative way that if I was if I was white, I would definitely be offended by it. And it's it's the the music that the young kids are listening to, the cult. There, if you listen to like this big hit song WAP W A P by Yes, we're not going to talk about what that stands for. That song is very. Don't Google it, kids. Don't Google it. And songs and songs like that are so popular among kids who are barely, you know, preteens, and they're they're singing and singing that. So we it's good to talk about this, and it's talk good to talk about comic books. And we mentioned how so many characters are race swap and gender swap and have the sexual orientation swap, and it's like how uh, do you make Velma a lesbian, Velma? Who had yeah. a crush on? <laughs> That's crazy to me. I don't get yeah. that. 
Well, I think she still has a crush on Fred, but now she has a crush on Fred and Daphne. So that's crazy. And no Scooby. I don't understand. Maybe it'll be a grapple. I'm not sure. I don't even want to talk about it. That's nuts. Yeah, so they were saying, I was saying how it's not just the music and the movies, uh, it's also the comic books, which is something I'm passionate about, and how they swap all these characters and then they insert. Um, insert their ideology sometimes directly they do a lot of uh self-insertions like to go back to as Delma. we talked about with with eric july yeah, yeah they self-insert so you see this uh like one this one famous self-insert i remember the names but it's a very goth it's starfire's daughter who's oh a very yeah overweight goth cynical uh, i think she's a lesbian uh young girl and then you see the writer and you think, wait, this is an overweight, goth, <laughs> cynical woman, you know? It's the same with another <laughs> character who's, who's like this, it's a woman of color. Uh, she's lesbian and she's in a, I think she's in a wheelchair or, or, or handicapped in some way. And then you see that writer and it's a woman of color who's openly lesbian and, and, and she's, uh, handicapped so they self-assert themselves in the in the comic books they push their agenda there was a famous panel where batman sees a, a riot occurring and he gives this interior monologue that he's not there to protect the man you know against these rioters you know is he because he's they all have insurance and he can't be bothered, which is so out of character for... That is so out of character for Batman. Yeah, but it fits the agenda of that writer. Absolutely. And uh, Mike Barron talked about gay Superman, who's, you know, Jonathan Kent, uh, Superman's uh, son. And, and the only reason for that character is for the writer to continue to insert his uh, version signaling. Of course. I mean, Jonathan Kent had his own title for a long time and people started to ask, when is he actually going to fight someone? I mean, one issue he's fighting climate change. The next issue he's talking about, uh, you know, gay case coming out the closet. He came out the closet like 10 times through, through that series. And, you know, it's people ridiculous. just stopped buying it because it was all about a certain agenda. It had nothing and then to if you stop buying time. it because it's boring, you're racist or transphobic or uh, homophobe or whatever it is. No, it's because it's boring. As Mike Barron said, you violated the first rule, which is to entertain. Yeah, it's all about yeah. the agenda. Yeah. And one more point is that there's a flip side to the left's uh, man uh, manipulation of the culture is that they not only want to monopolize the message by controlling every uh, character, every uh, avenue of the culture, they want to ban conservatives from being for, from partaking in the culture. And we saw that Eric July, where you can go to Reddit and you go to a, a site like Comic Books, you know, Reddit slash Comic Books, say, "Wow, I thought that Eric July was really good." You're instantly banned. Banned. Or you get shadow banned yep. on Twitter. Yep. Um, we had Nick Searcy on the show. Yeah. Yep. He he's an outspoken conservative. Yeah. He's he's suffered a lot for that. Um he sure has. And then you get someone more famous like J.K. Rowling, who's a very left-wing progressive woman, 
who goes out of her way to say that she supports uh, transgender people, let them live their lives, she would say, be happy, be well, but men are men and women are women. And, and even that's today, a fact. she said that years ago, and even today, I, I saw a story yesterday that they want to boycott yeah. some Harry Potter-based video game yep. because, because she's so full of hatred towards- Because she's a transphobe. Yeah. Couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah. Yeah. So not only does the left want to control the culture, they do it by pushing their agenda and they try to censor anybody who doesn't fit that agenda. So that's my uh, rant on that. Yeah, it's crazy. But thank goodness for people like Mike Barron and Eric July and... Uh, all those Chuck comic Dixon. gig yep. folks, yep. Chuck, Chuck Dixon, who's, of course, one of my all-time favorite writers because I'm such a Batman fan, and he wrote Batman Forever. Not not the movie Batman Forever. I mean, he wrote Batman for such, such for so many years that you know, hopefully we get to meet them. And, all, and, and, and another people who standing up to this, this culture fight, you know. Yes, yes. Well... That's it for another episode of African American Conservatives. We're going to wrap up with me, Marie, saying goodbye. This is DK saying adios. And we'll catch you next time on African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. Check us out at acons.substack.com, at uh, anchor.fm forward slash acons, or at brightnews.com. Until next time. Bye-bye.